So last week, we started our study in James, and if you recall, we went through just kind of a, a, a list, and of course, by no means did we exhaust that list, but just by way of reminder, some of the different things that we can do with our tongues, in a positive sense, we can encourage one another, we can exhort one another, we can remind, teach, tell stories, bring good news to a dying and lost world. We can proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And more than that, we can't just do those things, but we're commanded to do those things, right? In a positive sense, we can use our tongues and what we say to build up. But in a negative sense, we also can um, start rumors, start wars, divide. We can create movements, slander, malign, manipulate, gossip, right? Deny, entice, lure, lie, and so on and so on. And so we, we understood, I think, pretty clearly the ability and the power that our tongues have to either build up or destroy. And again, the theologian said we may not have the ability or capacity to sin in any way we want to at all times, but we can say whatever we want to any time we want to. We can say or uh, speak anything that we want to. And I was reminded of this this week even as I was listening to the news, I was listening to the radio, and I have no idea how it ended up on the station, but they were doing a press conference with... uh, I think it's the press secretary for the White House, I think, Sarah Sanders. And it just, it could not escape my mind what was going on here. And basically what was happening is she was doing a press conference and they were maligning her and they were pressing her for something that the president had said. And then he had recounted on that. And then he said something else and he had recounted on that. And so she's trying to defend him. And all these words are just flying back and forth. And then when she's done, so then they open it up for questioning. And I'm thinking, man, no thank you. I would never want to be in that position. But just the words that are flying around, the accusations and the tearing down and the, uh, just the propensity to slander one another with just a few amount of words. And the amount of destruction that happened in that 30-minute press conference to me was just mind-boggling. Clearly, clearly most of it was false. I mean, it was just lies. It was negativity. And yet I could not escape the thought of listening to what they had to say and the effect that it was having on one another. How it was causing divisions right then and right there. Just by some simple words. Talking over one another, not allowing one another to speak. Just all of that going on. And again, just the the ease of what a word can do and how it can destroy And so we started to look into this, into James, we're James chapter 3, and we started to look at this, and and what I want us to understand is that James says here, with this propensity, with this power of our tongue, James wants us to live a mature and holy life through how we speak. And we started to look at the four ways that James provides information on how the tongue can affect the Christian. First, the tongue we looked at last week is capable of condemning. Second is capable of controlling the whole body. We're going to see that today. Causing destruction and creating conflicts of interest. And under that first one, again, just by way of reminder, we talked about the fact that the tongue is capable of condemning. And he says it right here in James 1.26. I think this just kind of sums it up. It says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, 
This person's religion is worthless. We're not called to be worthless. We're called to be promoters of God's kingdom and to help further his kingdom by serving one another. But he says here, if we cannot bridle our tongue, we deceive our own hearts and our religion is worthless. If we're unaffected, if we're worthless, we're like the chaff that blows in the wind, right? Psalm 1. We're unnecessary and the Lord has no use for us, but we are meant to help further his kingdom and whatever gifts that he gives us. But an unbridled tongue is a clear indicator of a false believer, a false religion, as it says here. And just by way of reminder, flip over to Matthew real quick, Matthew 12. And I want us to see this very clearly. I know we looked at this last week, but it does not get any more clear than this. Matthew 12, 33, talking about this. And this is Christ's words himself saying this, verse 33, he says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You want to know what somebody's heart is like? Hear what they say. You will know by their fruit of their mouth. He says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. You cannot do one or the other. It's sim- or you cannot do both, excuse me. Rather, you can only do one or the other. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And this was our first point. The tongue is capable of condemning. And how can we say that that is true? Well, because again, it's not just simply what your words are, but it's the evidence that they give to where your heart is and where your heart stands before the Lord. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person brings evil out of the treasure of his heart. So you are one or the other. And he uses the example of teachers, right? We talked about this last week in 1 Corinthians At this time, it was custom for anybody to stand up and to teach. But I don't think that we can neglect the official office, the presbyter office as it is in the Greek, the official role that the the capacity and what a person says in the role of teacher has great ramifications and is under great scrutiny. And again, conceit and desire for such a high role to teach, to proclaim God's truth comes with great responsibility, and if it's done inadequately, you are bringing stricter judgment onto yourself. And James is saying, don't be quick to take this role. Do not be quick to take this responsibility. Because you will be judged, and you will be judged with a stricter judgment. And he goes on to say in verse 2, part A of verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. He's saying, so we all do this. We're all capable of stumbling. And we're all capable of stumbling in many ways. Emphatically, he's saying we all stumble in so many different ways. And yet the point here is the mouth is going to be the catalyst for that sin. And that brings us to our second second capability of the tongue, which is that the tongue is capable of controlling the whole body. Verse 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways, back in James says, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, 
able also to bridle his whole body. As we said last week, this is the main idea of the passage. James is saying here, if you are able to control your tongue, you can control the rest of your body. If we stumble in many ways, and you want to know how to control that stumbling, that falling, that failing, control your mouth, control your tongue. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all, right? The idea here, the daily walk, if we're walking, if we're trying to control our, ourselves, you typically hear that as a, as a way to describe our life is a daily walk. And sometimes we do stumble, right? Yes. Sure. Explain a little bit more. What do you mean? I would, well, I would say that they're probably both the same. Well, I would say that they're probably at the same time. If, you th- if you're not controlling your tongue, you're already deceiving yourself. Does that make sense? Okay, well, so, so explain what you're saying then a little bit more. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. Sure. Yes, 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 absolutely. Of course, the deceived heart is absolutely going to be the thing that reveals. But that being said, there are those who will stand in a position of teaching and proclaiming and still have a deceived heart. You see what I'm saying? Okay. That makes sense? Okay. So again, back to what we're saying here, the, the daily walk, we sometimes stumble. It's I think we need to understand here, not a fatal fall. He's saying that we do stumble. We do have a propensity to stumble and say things that uh, we ought not to say. All man is guilty of sinning in many different ways and yet is driven by what he says. And that's why 2B is really kind of the catalyst here. Although we stumble in many ways, James says the tongue is the catalyst, the marker, the identifier, the revealer of the heart. And thus, that's what condemns the man because of the heart condition. The marker for maturity here is of as control of the tongue. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Now, there's two ways we need to look at this. First of all, can anybody be perfect? No. So the term here, teleos, does either mean perfect or mature. So there's two views here, typically. The first one is that James is using the term in the sense of absolute perfection. Flawless speech, Right? In other words, he's saying, hypothetically, if you can control your tongue perfectly, then therefore you can control the rest of your body perfectly. But no man could actually achieve this. There are people who believe that's what he's saying. I don't think that's the right way to understand this, because clearly no man could actually be perfect in what they say or how they act. The other option is that James is using the term for maturity, which I think here is more uh, more probable, illustrating that the man who has the ability, although not perfectly, to control the tongue, can control the rest of their body. 
Why do I say this? Well, the rest of the letter is intended to encourage maturity in other areas of life. We kind of looked at this last week, right? talks about not sinning in the form of partiality or favoring others. And the term if here expresses the expectation James has that man will indeed stumble. He says, and if anyone does not stumble, what he says, he is a perfect man. So clearly James had in mind here, not perfection, but if you were able to do this, in becoming the, uh, if you were able to bridle your tongue, you would be mature, not perfect. But again, notice a direct correlation between the tongue and the whole man. Think about this. Since the tongue is most difficult to control, success in this area almost assures that the Christian is also able to control their whole body. In other words, the man is able to control all his members and capacities that sin seeks to use to express itself, as Heber says. Barclay, William Barclay says this, James is not for a moment saying that silence is better than speech. We're not talking about apathy here or just a neglect to speak at all. Instead, he says he is not pleading for a cowardly silence, but a wise use of speech. We are called to proclaim. We are called to speak. We are called to build one another up. And so in a negative sense, we have to neglect the propensity to sin with our mouths. But in a positive sense, we are called to use our mouths to build up. Not a cowardly silence, but a wise use of speech. I think that's very helpful. Simply put, through the power of the Spirit in the believer, the ability to check and guide the tongue is possible. Absolutely possible. And throughout his letter, he does a great job of this. I'm so thankful for James's letter and how he does this. He gives us two examples or two illustrations of control here. He's going to go on and give us two examples here. And notice, first off, that these next two examples are small in nature and yet have large effects. First, he gives us the example of the horse and the bridle. Verse 3 says this, If we put bits in, into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. I confess I have very little knowledge about horses, so I tried to uh, gain a little bit of information last night. And I came across this, wanting to understand a little bit more about a bit. And in the Easton Bible Dictionary, it defines the bit specifically in the time where this was written as a metal bar fastened to the muzzle end of the horse's bridle. The bit would be inserted into the horse's mouth between the teeth and used to control the horse. The bit had loops on either side or either end for attaching the reins, so you pull them through. And then it says some bits from the biblical period had spikes, which would have stuck into the side of the horse's mouth when the reins were applied. What is the purpose of that? Well, the pain made the horse more responsive to the rider's commands. Think about that. That's what he's saying here. This is the idea. You need to put something into your mouth and you need to be able to pull on it, rain on it to control the rest of your body. James says here, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, then we can guide their whole body as well. Obedience, in other words, becomes guidance. As we learn to obey, it becomes a way to guide ourselves. The purpose is so that 
Through obedience in this small area of such a massive animal, guidance can be controlled. And think about this. A horse is not naturally tame, right? Wild horses. We talk about our wild horse. Somebody out there is going, you have no idea what you're talking about. A horse is not naturally tame, but has its own will and tendencies. It needs to be broken. Another way to put it is that obedience needs to happen in order that they may be persuaded by us. We need to be able to control our mouths through this way. But I also want us to notice this. It is indeed the rider that puts the bit into the mouth so that he can control the, how, the horse. Excuse me. It's not necessarily the bridle itself, but the use of it by the rider that controls the horse. And in the same way, we need to understand that it is us, we are responsible for controlling our mouths. This is just simply an illustration and a tool. Psalm 32.9 says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. If you want to have the inability to control your mouth, if you want it to just be able to run amok, just go wherever it wants, to lead its own path, or in a very graphic way, spew word vomit all over people, right? Not have that control. Do not bridle your tongue. Let it go free. Let it be untamed. Let it be wild. And see the results of what happens. Second, he gives us the illustration of the ship and the rudder. Verse 4. He says, look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. James begins with this emphatic, look or behold. Take notice, he says. Pay attention. Take notice of the ships also. Take notice, first of all, how large they are. Look at their size. They are so large and are driven by strong winds. These large ships, these large vessels driven by outside forces, these stiff or heavy or strong winds are influenced by outward uh, influences, the elements, right? And you can easily think about how they could be destroyed or wrecked. Think about Acts 27, right? When Paul talks about that, he had been shipwrecked from the crew and the wind for I believe it was three whole days they uh, dealt with, I guess, what would be the equivalent of um, hurricane-force winds. And no matter what they did, they could not control it. And eventually they were shipwrecked, right? They lost everything on that. They had to throw everything overboard, and everybody had to get off the ship in order to survive. And it clearly talks about how the wind was directing the ship, and it was controlling it and taking it here and there. And yet with this in mind, there is the possibility of control through this very small rudder. I did not attempt to do any research on a rudder, but I think you get the idea. The rudder, though, again, just like the horse is controlled by the rider who controls the bit itself, the ship is controlled by the rudder, which is also controlled by the pilot and directed wherever the pilot wishes. And that's what it says here. They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. 
I think about these massive ships today, right? These huge, huge ships, like floating cities as they can be described. And if you've ever been on one or you've ever seen a photo of one, it's this gigantic, gigantic ship, but there's this little itty-bitty deck where there's just this small thing now. And it used to be on the big ships, right, where you control it to be much, much larger. Now it's literally about this big, and they just control the entire ship. Amazing, amazing capacity to control such a large thing, but such a small thing. And in the Greek, the emphatic, the... Uh, the contrast that is given in the original Greek cannot be overstated. He is trying to point out that it is such a small device that controls such a large, large thing. And so we understand here that the tongue controls. And through these illustrations, we know that we can control our whole body with just a small thing, our tongue. We have to. Again, don't see this as you are capable of doing it only, but we are commanded to do it as well, controlling our whole body through our tongue. So not only does the tongue condemn, and not only does the tongue control the whole body, but next we see that the tongue is also capable of causing destruction. Verse 5 says this, So also the tongue is a small member, Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. He starts off by saying, so also, right? The tongue is a small member, just as the bit in the rudder. Giving that comparison there, bringing it and tying it all in. Yet it boasts of great things. Now when I say boast, what do you guys think of? When you see the word boast here, what what kind of comes to mind? Pride. Absolutely. The term literally means pride. (laughs) Showing off. And as one theologian said, it boasts of great things because it's capable of such great things. It has the right to boast in such great things because it can have such great effects. The tongue makes great promises, great agreements, great statements, great claims. And think about this. This one breaks my heart, and yet it was what I was thinking about as I was studying through this. When you get married, you make the promise. I do. You make such a great claim, such a great promise, such a great statement, such a great agreement. And yet look at how much divorce there is and what destruction that is caused from that, right? pulling families apart, pulling all kinds of people apart, getting lawyers involved. Such destruction in the wake of just one example of a great promise that causes destruction when you break that great promise. And notice this. The fire starts small, right? It starts small. The word here is literally to kindle. Anepte, excuse me, in the Greek. And it begins with a word and becomes out of an out-of-control flame that sweeps and moves until it has destroyed as much as possible. So it's not like what I say just becomes this massive fire or massive blaze. Rather, it's a little kindle. It's a little whisper. It's a little gossip. It's a little slander that comes from one person to the next person to the next person. 
And next thing you know, this entire church or this entire forest is set ablaze by this one thing. I'm from Colorado originally, and there's an area there called Deckers. And probably about, I want to say about five years ago, there were these massive fires all over Deckers. Um, And I happened, I had just gone back to visit, so I hadn't been home for probably about a year and a half. It was the first time that I went back and uh, the fires had just gone out probably about two months earlier. And my grandfather and I went up to visit this little area there in Deckers and you could just see the destruction. Just the whole mountainside is completely gone, just completely burned, rubble, nothing there. But more than that, it wasn't just the immediate flames and the effects that had happened there. It was the after effects too that really caught me. Because we got stopped about a mile away from this area that we were trying to get to. And we could see up ahead of us hundreds of people carrying shovels and taking wheelbarrows and people going in front loaders and stuff going up. And we're thinking, what in the world is going on? Well, because the forest had been burned, this area had been completely burned, that we had a torrential downpour. And from that came mudslides. And these mudslides literally came about a mile and a half into this little town. And it was, I'm not kidding you, four feet high. We couldn't even get up there, couldn't go see it. And this just, again, was what I was thinking was, it's not just the simple fire right here that causes destruction, but it's the after effects too. It lingers, it stays forever. And it's not just an immediate area either, right? Think about the smoke that affects other people. We've been here when there's fires in other areas, and you've experienced it, I'm sure, where the smoke comes in. If you've lived in California, anywhere like that, and you can feel the smoke from states away. Literally, you're affected. So many people are affected by this destruction. And that's what he's talking about here. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small word, by such a small member, by such a small fire. Our tongues are capable of such destruction. And if it can do that to a forest, think of what it can do to a church. What destruction and what division. Philo, uh, a theologian said this, desire darts through the whole soul and leaves not the smallest bit of it uninjured. In this, it imitates the force of fire working on an abundance of fuel which it kindles into a blaze and devours until it has utterly consumed it. Again, our tongue is so capable of disaster and, and destruction because it is a direct reflection of what is in our hearts, the propensity for sin and desire. We don't get something, so we say something bad about somebody. We don't agree with somebody, so we say something negative about them. And the effects are destruction. The results are destruction. And he goes on, verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The tongue indeed is a fire. It is destructive in its nature. Just like the fire, un, un, um, unchecked, wild, 
But he says this, this interesting thing. He says it's a cosmos or a world of unrighteousness. In other words, the tongue is a vast system or, 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 uh, or organism of iniquity and unrighteousness. If you have your Bible, flip over to Matthew 15. Matthew 15. I think this will give us clarity on this. Matthew 15. Talking about the natural or the nature of the tongue. Listen to this. Verses 1 through 20 say this. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What would you have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Sounds kind of like James one twenty six, right? He goes on. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, But what comes out of the the mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Verse 15. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles the person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the heart. This is the tongue. It is a vast system of iniquity. It is an organism of iniquity and unrighteousness. And as the tongue is a part of us, we cannot remove it unless forced, right? It has the ability to defile our entire being, our whole life. It stains, it permeates the whole man, the entire course of life as it says here. It affects relationships. It affects reputations. And listen to this. How strong of a statement this is. And it is set on fire by hell itself. The term here is Gehenna. Used specifically here. It's only used here. In in the New Testament anyway. And the term is Gehenna. It's Hebrew for the Valley of Hinnom. And if you guys are familiar with Gehenna at all, just a quick background of this. It's the place right outside of Jerusalem where uh, during the time of Josiah or before Josiah's reign, it was used for human sacrifices. 
that were made to the pagan god Moloch. Thankfully, Josiah used it for good and uh, got rid of it, but it became later used uh, uh, for dumping, uh, dumping ground for the city of Jerusalem where they would put their waste and their filth. And in order to get rid of that waste and that filth, they would constantly burn it. There was a constant fire going on so that they could get rid of it. And so to the Jews, this became almost a, an illustration. They would use this as an illustration for a proper picture of the final place of judgment. This is where they would use the term hell. It was a place of defilement, a place of filth where human sacrifices were made, where human remains were, and then later trash and all kinds of filth and disgusting stuff. And this is what he's saying. When we speak these things, when we open up our mouths uncontrollably, it is set on fire by hell itself, and this was the view that he had in mind. This place of defilement and filth. Think of how disgusting that that is. And this again is what James is illustrating as a resource of our tongue. This is what he is saying our heart is showing when we speak in such a way, in such a manner. And the point is this, it is demonic. And Satan is directly behind it. John 8.44 says this, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When we speak in an untamed, unbridled manner, it is a world of unrighteousness. It stains our whole body. It stains our entire course of life. It affects everything in our bodies, everything that we do, everybody around us, and it is driven by hell itself. Driven by hell itself. All too readily, an uncontrolled tongue can become the tool of Satan and his hosts in spreading the fire of hell. We need to understand that that is what our tongue is capable of doing, right? And he goes on and he gives us a couple more examples. In verse 7 he says, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. These verses simply identify the main point James is trying to make. Though beasts common, wild for uh, wild animals, who are naturally untamed or undomesticated, excuse me, can be tamed. Birds, reptiles, sea creatures, the whole gamut, every kind of animal is capable of being tamed. Right here, he's covering them all. Man, to some capacity, can control these animals. Right? Think about this. Have you ever seen the video of the guy sticking his head in the alligator's mouth or a lion's mouth? doesn't always end up well. I said most of the time he can control it, right? Maybe you'll go home and watch it now just to find out what the outcome is. But to some capacity, man can control animals, right? And we're called to. That's what God tells Adam to do. He says to uh, oversee the earth and to control the animals. And again, notice he says, can be tamed and has been tamed. And in the same way, man not only can tame the tongue, but has to tame the, t- tame the tongue, should tame the tongue. 
Verse 8, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The term restless here means unstable. So like a wild animal, it is looking to escape. It's unstable in everything that it does. It's looking to escape and spread its venom, right? The tongue is looking to naturally do what it does, which is to spread wildfire, spread venom, cause destruction, cause issues. And thus, we must be all the more diligent to make every effort to put on the new self, right? Colossians 3, 7 uh, through 8 says this, in these, two, uh, in these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. James is saying here, if you are a new creature, if you are a new believer, if you have been made new in Christ, these things will not be part of you, part of your speech. And if you have the ability to control your tongue, you must control your tongue. You must have control over it. You must tame it because of what great destruction can come from it if you don't. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. This is not an option for us, beloved. This is a commandment for us to put these things out of our mouth. Again, let no unwholesome speech come from your mouth except for that which is for building up, which is profitable. And finally, we've seen that the mouth is capable or the tongue is capable of condemning. We've seen that it's capable of controlling the whole man. It's capable of causing destruction. And now we see that the tongue is capable of creating conflicts of interest. Verses 9 through 12. And up to this point, James has practically personified the tongue, right? He's used it to give us many illustrations. But he's acutely aware of the person behind the tongue. Again, he's giving us these illustrations, but wants us to understand that it is the man who is behind controlling the tongue. An inconsistency is no doubt still a natural side effect of the fall of man. Again, we are not perfect. Even in the Christian, we have the propensity to sin. We have this inconsistency... D. Edmund Hebert says this, Even believers may be guilty of duplicity. Bless and curse are in the present tense and and indicates the tongue's ability to play the part of a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And it is not an isolated occurrence. So we see here in verses 9 through 12 that the tongue is capable of creating a conflict of interest. Verse 9 says this, With it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. In one breath, the Jews in this time would bless God and yet curse men. It's helpful to understand that it was common practice among the Jews Jews when speaking or writing to make the statement, blessed be he, after they would make a statement, after they would say something, or after each utterance, they would say, blessed be he. And yet we're willing to curse man made in God's image. There are so many different um, places in Scripture we could go, but think about Christ Himself. They would honor God with one breath and then they would condemn Christ who was God in the flesh in another. Or curse His followers, curse His disciples, right? And the term curse is to wish ill will, call down calamity upon someone. 
And in the same way today, it is often that we will come together on Sunday this morning to praise and worship together and yet slander or malign a brother and sister. Perhaps even someone who is not a believer, right? This is a clear violation of the greatest commandments. What is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? What is the second greatest commandment? Pretty simple. And yet we break those commandments all the time by praising God and yet slandering a brother or sister or slandering somebody who's not a believer. How could they act that way? Who do they think they are? How could we not expect an unbeliever to act the way that they act, right? Why would we malign them? Why would we not have pity on them? To curse man is to insult the God whose likeness man bears. That's what he says here. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in His likeness. Man should rather promote goodwill and respect even towards those who may cause them harm or ill repute, right? If they say this or they do this, if they strike you, turn the other cheek. Don't speak bad about them. Do not turn your tongue against them and try to tear them down through gossip or slander. And he emphatically says this, these these things should not be so. Verse 10. The gentle rebuke is clear and a reminder that we are not to be double-tongued. Do not say one thing and then turn around and say another. From the same mouth, verse 10, come blessing and cursing my brothers. These things ought not be so. And then he gives us two illustrations to drive home this point. He asks these questions. Does a spring forth, uh, does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Or can a, fr- a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The obvious answer to these questions is what? No. Surely they cannot do these things. And in the same way, you need to understand that your mouth is not called to do both of these things. Slander and encourage. You are only to build up. You are only to speak things that are for profit. Again, Matthew 12.33, you will know them by their fruits. You are either of your father, the devil, or you are of your father, who is God. The point is this, that we should not be known by this, in, uh, this inconsistent type of speech, right? Be consistent with what you say. Do not be known for speaking out of both sides of your mouth, as it were. Two-faced, double-tongued. Instead, as James is encouraging us here, let your maturity be evident in how you speak. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You cannot have both fresh water and salt water. You cannot bear fig trees, or uh, bear olives if you're a fig tree, or a grapevine if you're a fig tree. Flip over to 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. 1 Peter 2.
Here we see the greatest example for us. 1 Peter 2, 21-25 says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. He was perfect. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Beloved, if you believe this, if you trust in the fact that Christ did bear our sins in His body on that tree, on that cross, if we have indeed died to sin so that we can live to righteousness, if we have been indeed redeemed and we are no longer straying like sheep but have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls, we too have to bridle our tongues. Let no deceit be found in your mouths. When you're reviled, do not revile in return. Guard your tongues. Guard your mouth because of the, the capacity that they have, the power that they have, the ability that they have. The tongue is capable of bringing judgment, causing destruction, controlling your whole body, your entire member, and creating conflicts of interest. And beloved, because of this, we must tame it. We must tame our tongue and bring it under subjection so that we can build one another up in love and honor God. Let no corrupt speech come out of your mouth except for that which is profitable for building up. Thoughts? Questions? Okay. Thank you, guys.